Before we get into God's word, let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. We thank you that you speak to us. You tell us who you are. You tell us of your love for us. You tell us what it means to live a life that brings honour and glory to you. We pray that as we know that your love for us, that we might really just learn to delight in your word and in all that it has to say to us as the words from one who loves us so much. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're reading today, for anyone who wants to follow along, from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 1 through to verse 21. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Now, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you'll not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You have begun to reign and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so strong. You are honoured. We are dishonoured. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We've become the scum of the earth the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I've sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in the church. Some of you have become arrogant, 
as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline? Or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Paul does not pull any punches in chapter 4 of his letter to the Corinthians. The Corinthian church, or at least a part of the Corinthian church, thought that they had it made. They thought, we're the ones that have it all together. We're the ones that God is really proud of. We're the ones that show what it really is to be Christian. We're the ones living our best life now. You might have heard the phrase, live your best life now. There's a school of thought or of of teaching uh, within some churches, within some parts of the Kurong bookshop, within uh, the part, you know, within our society. That sees, yes, that God is our Father and sees that God loves us, these things that are very true, and that every good thing that we have comes from God, another thing that is very true. And then they follow from that. Therefore, if God loves us, it's His will then for us to never be sick but always be healthy, to never be in want but always have all that, we, all that we desire. That every good thing that we want to have, every comfort, if God loves us, if God is for us, then we will have those things if only we have enough faith. That the role of the church is to have faith in Jesus to give us our best life now. And I think that's exactly what at least part of this Corinthian church had fallen into. Already, Paul says, you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign. You've made it. Except no, you haven't. You just think you have. This church that in in many ways is probably the messiest church that we see in this Old Testament, uh, in this New Testament period, They're the ones that think they've got it all together. Paul tells us you've become puffed up against... uh, You'll be puffed up by being a follower of one of us. We've seen in the previous chapters we've looked at how the church had divided over, I follow Paul, well, I follow Apollos, well, I follow Peter uh, or Cephas. And they've become puffed up in this... You know, our group is the best group. Our group is the true group. We are the ones who have it right. We are the ones who God loves. They've made too much of the leader of their own faction. And when I say leader, like Paul and Apollos were not encouraging this sort of behaviour. But they were making too much of these people that they'd claimed as the leader of their faction. But they're also setting themselves in judgement then against the leaders of the other faction. 
If you were in the Paul group, therefore, you know, Apollos had to be, well, he, he wasn't right. We're not followers of Apollos, we're followers of Paul. And so when Paul says, this is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed, he's warning the Corinthians against both of those problems, about the problem of putting too much investment in the one that they're following, but also in in standing against the leader of the other group that they oppose. So he's already spoken in the last chapter about the danger that there are the problems with them making too much of one of the leaders, that the church is not built on Paul or Apollos, but on Christ. And now he warns them against that other problem, the problem of looking down, of setting yourself up as the judge, as the one who has the discernment to decide which group is right and which group is in God's in-group and which group isn't. And Paul says to them, if people are faithful servants of Jesus, servants of Christ, those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed, if people are faithful servants of Jesus, our judgment of them doesn't matter. Even their own judgment of themselves doesn't matter. There's only one judgment that matters when it comes to these people who are servants of Christ, who are doing his work. Only one judgment that they should be concerning themselves with. And that judge is, of course, Jesus. I mean, we see the same thing in our world today. We see every time somebody moderately well-known is, uh, you know, accused of a crime. They've been found guilty or innocent a million times in the court of public opinion long before their case is ever heard in the actual court of law. There's something in human nature that we like to set ourselves up to make judgments in situations where we don't have the authority and we don't have all the facts. There's only one judgment, like Well, the court of public opinion can certainly hurt people. But there's only one court's opinion that actually matters whether this person will be deemed innocent or guilty, whether they'll go free or whether they'll be imprisoned. There's only one judgment that matters. And so we shouldn't look down, Paul warns us, in judgment on other Christians that are faithfully following Jesus. Now, we need to be clear about what that actually means. He warns them not to judge, to set themselves up. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Uh, Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that's not what makes me innocent. What Jesus says about me is what makes me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, he gives them this command, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. Judge nothing. Do not judge. or if, you know, As you judge by the same measure, you will be judged. What does it actually mean to be people that don't judge? Now, sometimes we can have this, uh, you know, this can be thrown out in a discussion where you offer any kind of correction 
against something that somebody is doing wrong, any kind of rebuke. In the very next chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to tell the church that there is somebody who is willfully living in sexual sin and they should be kicked out of the church. So it's clear that when Paul says about not having judgment on other Christians, it doesn't necessarily mean that we don't need to be discerning. It doesn't mean that there isn't a time for the word of God to correct and to rebuke and to challenge wrong behaviour. Particularly in this case where it's, it's ongoing unrepentant sin. Um, the Bible, well, we'll talk more about that next week, but we all sin. We all short, fall short of the glory of God and making, you know, stuffing something up is not grounds for being kicked out of the church. But willfully being opposed to what the Bible says is actually sin and, and um, you know, willfully continuing in it without uh, any shame that's a real problem. But that's for next week. But what, I raise that point to say, when Paul tells us not to judge, it doesn't mean that we can't say certain behaviours are sin. It doesn't mean that we can't correct. It doesn't mean we can't come alongside. But what it does mean is that people's ultimate salvation is not in my hands and it's not in your hands. It's in God's hands. It keeps us safe from that kind of exceptionalism that says we are the only true believers and we, we can decide who is one of us. It, it encourages us to have humility towards one another and to remember that the judge for all of us is Jesus Christ. Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Your judge is Jesus. My judge is Jesus. And that's really good news. Because Jesus is a just judge. He will do what is right. But also, because the one who's going to be deciding our eternal destiny is the one who loved us while we were still his enemies, who loved us so much that he gave his own life for us, that on the cross he would take on the penalty our sins deserved and his righteousness would be counted to us. So we know that our judge is for us and we know that if we have put our trust in him like he's called us to and followed him, we know what his judgment will be on that last day. We don't have to worry about what if the judge is in a bad mood on that day. What if the judge got cut off on the freeway and is in really grumpy and just wants to take it out on somebody? We know that the judge is just. We know that the judge also cares about us. And there's a great freedom as God's people in being able to trust in his judgment and great humility in remembering our place and not putting ourselves 
as the judge and the leader over one another. Because if we forget that we're not the boss, that we're not the judge, we're liable to become proud like the Corinthians did. To think that we've made it, that we are the bee's knees, that we are all that it is to be a Christian. They believed, well, Paul certainly seemed to think they believed they'd made it. You have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign in that without us. You are so wise in Christ. You are so strong. You are honoured. They think that they've got their best life now. That following Jesus means all of these good things for them. That they are at the top of the hill. But Paul confronts them to say what all of this belief about them being on top of the hill is a complete illusion. This is not what it means to be a Christian. And so he contrasts his experience with theirs. He says, you know, we feel like we're you know, on a procession like those who are going to die in the arena. We're fools for Christ. People laugh at us. We are weak. We are dishonoured. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags and are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. And when we're cursed, we're blessed. we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. And then just a few verses later, he says, I urge you to imitate me. See, when people think Christianity is about our best life now, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It means, well, if, if all God cares about in this life is that I have lots of money and lots of comfort and things are really good, then all of my efforts are going to go into me having lots of money and lots of comforts and my life being easy and good. But when we pursue that kind of life, it also becomes a big mess. The church we've seen here in Corinth was a big mess as everybody's out for themselves and thinking only of themselves. And when we live that sort of life, We're not succeeding. The church is not succeeding in the mission that it has been given to show the love of Christ to this world, to show the goodness of Christ, to take up our cross and follow him. So when Paul says all of these things about this is what it looks like for me to be a Christian, to be hungry and thirsty, in rags, homeless, brutally treated, should we expect them following Jesus to be misery? Should we expect that it's hell on earth in the hope of heaven hereafter? As the old saying goes. I think it's important that we this is, you know, when when Bible teachers bang on about the importance of context, this is one of those key times where Paul is putting things very strongly because he's correcting a church that have gone way too far in the other direction. That They're not interested in any suffering. They don't think any hardship is part of the Christian life. 
And so Paul really drives home all of the hardships that he has faced. But in other contexts where he's writing to churches that are being persecuted, that are suffering, he writes a lot more about, uh, a lot to comfort them, to talk about the comfort God gives us, the peace that he gives us, the joy of the Christian life. So sometimes we can sort of take things like this in isolation and push it too far and say, unless my life is absolutely miserable, maybe I'm not being faithful to God. But Paul does want us to open our eyes to say, actually, there are going to be times when following God is going to hurt. There are going to be times when following God is not going to be easy. Paul calls us to face the reality that struggle and sacrifices are to be expected. That we will struggle with sins, that we'll fall short. That we will have people who won't like us because they don't like Jesus. That we will have sickness and mourning and all sorts of troubles. Not wall to wall, 100% of our life will be these things. But those are parts of the normal Christian life. And all the more because we're called to take up our cross and follow Jesus. To count the cost of what it means to be a follower of Jesus means that we know going into it that there, that there will be the possibility of hard days, of suffering, of struggle. But also that we will have our eyes open to the fact that God loves us and is with us on those hard days and with us in our struggles and with us in our failures with sin and with us in all of the things that we go through. When we think the Bible is about our best life now, then anything going wrong is devastating because it makes us question that, well, if things are going wrong, that must mean God doesn't love me. Maybe that means I'm not one of his because if God loves people, he gives them all the good stuff. And that's why Paul is so strong in correcting this. No, if you're going to follow Jesus... Hard times are going to happen. And God is going to love you through each and every day of those hard times and be with you. And so it's good for us to think about as we reflect on these words of Paul, what do we expect the Christian life to be? Do we expect no suffering and all glory and easy pain-free life with all the good things we can ask for. Maybe we've swerved too far the other way. Do we expect all suffering and no goodness? And the walk becomes bitter and you know something we just get through with gritted teeth rather than realising the love of God is there with us through it all. So right expectations about this life will shape how we live. It will shape how we serve. And it will shape how we give thanks to God and trust him, even throughout the hard times. If we remember that we're not here on earth, our purpose is not that we live our best life now, but that God is glorified in all that we do. 
that we show the love of Jesus to the world around us, that we are his hands and his feet. And when we see that as the purpose of our lives, that will shape how we live and what we do and how we feel about when those things make our life hard and difficult and uncomfortable. But I don't want to finish on a dour note of what it means that they, that we will have to face hard times. And that's not where Paul leaves things either in this chapter. See, one of the great blessings and comforts that God gives us, even despite the hard times, one of the great comforts in our mission and in our life that we have is each other, is the people in this room and well, like the people who aren't in this room but are often in this room, that are off on holidays, and the people that are in rooms like this one where they likewise faithfully worship God, we are a blessing to one another. See, Paul finishes this section by writing, look, I've got stuck into you a bit, but I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. This is a church that Paul planted. He was the first, pe- first person to teach these people about Jesus Christ, about his death on the cross, about the forgiveness of their sins and the hope of life everlasting. And he loves this church. He considers himself their father. Not, not in the same way God is their father, of course, but as the one who had planted this church. He also talks about Timothy, his beloved son. Now, Timothy is, of course, not literally his son. But Timothy has been a young, uh, Timothy was a younger man who travelled uh, on a number of Paul's journeys with him and who clearly they had come to really love one another as father and a son. God has given us each other, the people of God, to be an encouragement, to be a blessing to help bear the burdens that we face in this life. Families like this, that we support one another, we encourage one another, we love one another. And, as we'll see in the next chapter, sometimes families do have to rebuke and correct one another and steer one another away from dangers. Uh, That's what Paul is warning this church. Not because he wants to stop them having fun, but because he sees the danger of the path that they're on. And so Paul calls them, his dear children, to imitate him and his way of life, to reject this pride of theirs and be willing to serve and to suffer. And even, and this was one of the most galling things for the Corinthian church, even to be thought of as a fool. In a society, Greek society, where wisdom was so highly prized and philosophy was, you know, what so many people did to show how wise they were, they'd even be thought as fools by holding on to the message of the cross of Christ. He calls on them to make sacrifices, like he has made sacrifices, in order to share the gospel. We need to make sacrifices for those that we love, for the sake of him that we love and who loved us. Sacrifices of money. I mean, 
that's so many ministries in the world doing great things in the name of Jesus, but one thing that they all have in common is that they all cost money. And that's something that we can give. And if there's one thing that we're probably poorer in than money, it's time. And yet we can give our time to ministries that will make an eternal difference for people in this world. Make a big difference for people in this world and an eternal difference for them in the world to come. You might make sacrifices of holding unpopular opinions. Sometimes being faithful to Jesus and following him, taking up our cross, means holding on to what we know the Bible says, even though people would really rather we didn't hold on to those things. That will lead to opposition. That will lead to people thinking that we're fools. But if the Bible is clear about these things, then we can't uh, do anything other than hold on to them because this is God's word to us. We're called to take up our cross and follow Jesus. But the catch is, none of us have met Jesus in the flesh. We all know Jesus, all those who have put our trust in him, We've met him through his spirit, through his word. And Paul, as he's writing to these Corinthians, most of these people have never met Jesus. But they have met Paul. And so he says, imitate me. And he says in another one of his letters, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. It's good for us to look around at the people that God has brought into our lives to look for those who are godly examples of what it looks like to be someone like Jesus. And that we desire that God might work in our hearts, that we might be a godly example to somebody else. And so... Paul, in this very uh, challenging part of his letter, this very strongly written letter to the Corinthian church and their pride, reminds us we're not to put ourselves as the judge over other believers, but to remember that Jesus is the judge who gave his life for us. We're called to take up our cross and follow him. And that doesn't mean that life will always be miserable, but it does mean that we need to be open to the fact that hard times will come. And when those hard times do come, let's be the the church, the family that God has made us to be. Let's be an encouragement, a blessing, a support to one another. And let us be imitating Christ and those who are like him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your servant Paul, for his wisdom that you had given to him and for his faithfulness in teaching it to us. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to be proud, not to think that Uh, we are the be-all and end-all of what it means to be a Christian. But we pray that you would help us to be faithful servants as well.
Lord, help us to expect neither heaven on earth nor hell on earth, but to faithfully take up our cross and follow you, knowing that you give us many good things in this life. Every good thing we enjoy is from you. But also knowing that when we face hard times and struggles, that's part of what it means to follow you. It doesn't mean you're opposed to us. It doesn't mean you've forgotten us. But may we remember your love through it. And may we as your church show your love to one another through the hard times that we face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.